The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. On this Father's Day, I can't help but think that I would not be your pastor were it not for the work of God's grace in my life through my own father. Most of you know he was and is a pastor. But that's not the reason that I became a pastor at all. If anything, being a pastor's child, which there are many of you out there, we are somehow at Shades like a refuge for pastor's kids. We need a support group. But if anything, being a pastor's kid would more often deter you from following in your father's footsteps. And that's why I say I'm amazed at the grace of God and his work in my life through my father because one thing that I think my father instilled in me through everything he experienced in ministry, through the ups, the downs, and there were some very low lows, some very huge downs, through all of that, his love for Christ and his love for the church never waned. And he instilled in me those things, a love for Christ and a love for his church. And I hope that today, in John 17, 20 through 23, we'll catch a glimpse of why. Why he loved the church. Why I love you, church. And I hope why you love one another. So we're going to pray. And then we'll dive in. Because, Shades, this, in my opinion is the most difficult passage in the Gospel of John. Like, it does not get deeper, thicker, more tongue-tied and twisted up in language, and what do you mean, Jesus, than, than, than this. And I feel very inadequate and, and lacking. And so I've got not even five loaves and two fish. i got a half a fish and a half a loaf for you this morning. And so let's pray for God to work his miracle of multiplying it to feed our souls. So God, we who do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from you, we pray that you would feed us by your word this morning. God, I pray that when my preparation fails to even feed myself, that you perform a miracle by your Holy Spirit to feed all our hearts and souls, to meet us where we are with what we need to be drawn into your great redemptive story. Father, draw us out of ourselves this morning, closer to you. Open our eyes to behold your glory who you are, and who you've created us to be as your people this morning. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to John 17. We've been reflecting there for just a little bit. This is our fourth part of reflecting on Jesus's, what, what's called his high priestly prayer. We've been calling it the deepest prayer of our high priest. And it's going to take us one more sermon. It's going to take us five parts to get through this, which is no small feat. I began our, our reflection on this passage by telling you that I own a book where uh, one pastor, Marcus Rainford, wrote over 50 expositions on this chapter. So five, I think we're making a good pace here, okay? All right, but anyway, so we've been reflecting on the deepest prayer of our high priest, and I've, I've been summarizing, trying to get to the essence of this prayer in this way. This is, this is the way I've been summarizing it. Jesus wants us to know joy in the glory of God so that our joy makes God's glory known. Jesus wants us to know joy in the glory of God. It's where the prayer starts. Father, glorify. The hours come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. This whole prayer is centered on the glory of God. And we've seen again and again and again that that is for our joy. That God centers on God because he loves us and he aims to give us the best. And the best is himself. We don't want him centered on or giving us anything less. We're going to see that again today. Jesus wants us to know joy in the glory of God so that our joy makes his glory known. And what I wanted you to notice as we get started today about that statement is the pronouns. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but the pronouns in that sentence are plural. That's on purpose. I keep saying that Jesus wants us to know joy in the glory of God so that our joy makes God's glory known. I've been emphasizing the corporate nature of this, the plurality of this. This is exactly where we ended our last time together when we were in verses 17 to 19 where Jesus prayed for us to be sanctified together, for us to be sent together That's just another way to say for us to know joy in the glory of God, be sanctified together, know joy in his glory, and for that joy to make his glory known, for us to be sent together. And perhaps as we concluded that last time, you were left thinking, why? Like, why together? Can't I do all of that alone, pursue sanctification, holiness on my own, be sent, live on mission alone on my own? Own why together. And in fact, I think that most of us think about our relationship with Christ primarily as something we do alone. I think that's only natural. Most of us have grown up in an individualistic Western culture. That's not all bad. There are some good things to individualism. Thank goodness for the recognition of the individual, the individual sanctity of life, individual rights, there are some really good things to that. But we live in an individualistic culture to the extreme. And that infects our way of thinking. And I think that it often leads us to think of our relationship with Christ primarily, if not solely, in an individualistic way. It's just Jesus in me. It's my personal relationship with Christ. My quiet time, my prayer life, we, we talk about it all in a very individualistic way. And anything beyond that, like other Christians, fellowshipping with them, interacting with them, the church, that's all just add-ons. Like what's essential is the individual relationship with Christ and everything else is an add-on. We move from the individual outward. We, uh, we treat the church like it's, uh, like it's one of Amazon's you-may-also-like items. Like if you enjoyed your last purchase of personal salvation with Jesus, you may also like the church. We primarily think of a relationship with Jesus in an individualistic way. But that's not the primary way the Bible talks about our relationship with Jesus. That's... It's not the primary emphasis. In in fact, Scripture speaks about the whole of the Christian life consistently as something we are meant to live together as a people, the people of God. This is the emphasis of Scripture from beginning to end. I mean, the first thing we're ever told in Scripture is it's not good that man should be alone. He creates a people for himself. When the book ends... It's with a people for himself. And the story in the middle that involves you and me is his redemption of a a people. That's the emphasis of Scripture from the start to the finish. It's the heart of the gospel. Jesus came for a people. He died for a people. He saved a people for God's own possession to enjoy him now and forever. Uh, One of my favorite theologians, Kevin Van Hooser, he says it this way. He says, the church is not a collection of saved individuals but the culmination of the plan of salvation to create a people of God. Right there, Van Van Hooser, he's not denying, nor am I denying that there's an individualistic aspect to our salvation. I'm not denying that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not denying things like Jesus loves you individually. Scripture teaches that. It affirms that. It speaks that way. Paul speaks that way in places like Galatians 2.20. Crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Scripture can speak in a very personalized way, but even when it does that, it always does it at the purpose of drawing us as an individual back into the corporate, the people of God. Scripture emphasizes a people. We emphasize 
the personal. And here's the reason I'm concerned about this. I'm pastorally concerned about this. I'm concerned about our emphasis on the personal to the detriment of the emphasis on the people because I think that we suffer for it. I, I sit in my office week after week or across a table from somebody in a coffee house week after week with individuals struggling to pursue joy in Jesus as an individual. They find it hard. I don't know if you've ever found that hard. And even when they gather with other believers, it's not a help. Typically, it's more of a hurt. They end up just feeling guilty because it clearly looks like everybody else is doing a better job of pursuing Jesus than they are. But what, what if all of that is backwards? What if it's not our personal pursuit of Jesus Christ that fuels us as a people, but actually our pursuit of Christ as a people that's meant to fuel us personally? In, in other words, I mean by that, I grew up thinking that as a Christian, I spent my week pursuing Jesus as an individual. In scripture prayer, song, fasting, sharing the gospel, etc. And then when we came together, when I came together to worship with God's people, that was an overflow of all that I had been doing throughout the week. It was a culmination. Started with the individual and then moved to like, what if it's the other way around? What if it's our pursuit of Jesus together that's meant to overflow into my personal life throughout the week? What if it's our study of the Word together that's meant to fuel my personal reading of Scripture? When people are struggling to read Scripture, their number one reason is, I have a difficulty understanding it. I tell them, that's because you're reading it alone. Nobody's meant to read the Bible alone. I don't mean you're never allowed to literally sit alone and read the Bible. I meant that it's a book written to and for community. We read it, we study it, we talk about it in community. I don't sit up in my office every week alone and study this so I can come and deliver down from the heavens to you the divine oracles of God. I study surrounded by the church. My office wall to wall is full of books, mostly by dead people, but that's because I trust them more than I trust living people because their stuff has survived. But that's another sermon in and of itself. I sit surrounded by books because I'm surrounded by the church. Surrounded by voices from across traditions and throughout history that helped me look at this book and understand what's going on. They were a people indwelt by the Holy Spirit as much as I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I talk with Brad, I talk with Dad, I talk with you, I bounce things. Why? Because I know that I need the community to understand the word written to the community. What, what if it's our, our pursuit of Jesus Together? What if it's our study of the word together that's meant to fuel our personal reading of Scripture? What if it's our prayer together that's meant to fuel, to teach us how to pray and to fuel our prayer life? What if it's our sharing of our faith together that stirs us up and fuels us to share our faith with others? What if pursuing joy in Jesus so that our joy makes his glory known, what if that's something we're meant to do? together. Obviously, I think it is. I think, I think it is. I think we're meant to do this together because I believe that's precisely what Jesus is praying for in John 17, 20 to 23, as best as I can untangle these words and understand it. I, Jesus is praying that we would know joy in him together and that our joy would make his glory known together. And this prayer shows us why, why we do this together. Let's unpack it together. That was, never mind. Let's unpack it together. John 17. Let's begin in verse 20. Everybody know where we're going? Well, why it is that we do this thing together, the Christian life together. I think it's the only way it works, and Jesus' prayer shows us why that 
is. John 17, beginning of verse 20, Jesus praying to the Father says, I do not ask for these only. That's for his current disciples, the 11 that are around him. Remember, we are on the night that, Ju- that Jesus was betrayed. Judas has already left the room to go and conspire in order to betray him. He's got 11 around him. He's been praying for them. But now he swaps gears. I do not ask for these 11 only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent. So up to this point, Jesus' prayer has been focused on the 11 that are present with him, but now he shifts towards those who will believe in him in the future. He shifts towards us, towards you, towards me. We're told throughout Scripture, that, especially in Romans, that Jesus prays for us, intercedes for us. Ever wondered what he prays? Here's a clue. This is him praying for you. Don't you want to know what he prays? He prays for us. And he prays two things twice. The same two things twice. A little bit different way, emphasizing a little bit of a different thing. He prays two things twice. He prays a petition, request, and he prays a purpose. A petition and a purpose. We've already seen them both for the first time in verse 21. What's the petition? What's he petitioning, asking the Father for? That we may be one. That's that's the prayer, that we would be one, united, together, like we've been talking about. And what's the purpose of our oneness? It's right at the end of verse 21. There's a big, so that. Thank you, there you go. That's right, Charles, represent so that the world would believe. Our oneness is meant to witness to the world as evidence that Jesus really is the Savior, really sent by God. We've got a petition and a purpose. I just have one question about each of these things. How? We're supposed to be united together. Great. How? And what what does that oneness look like? And... How in the world does that oneness serve as evidence to the world that Jesus is the Christ? Like, how does does that work? So those are the two questions I want us to wrestle with for the rest of our time. I want us to tackle how are we supposed to be one and how does that oneness witness to the world? And I think that together we will see why we have to do this thing together. Okay, so let's take those one at a time. So first, Jesus' petition is that we may be one, united, together. How? What does that look like? I grew up in an individualistic culture like most of you. What does this look like? Jesus is glad we asked because he actually tells us. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus prays that they may all be one just as, here's what it looks like, just as You, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Awesome, that was helpful. You just got to be honest with Jesus sometimes, people. What are you talking about? Jesus tells us that our one, I sit in my office and wrestle with this junk for hours, beating my head against my desk going, I'm so stupid, what do you mean? I don't know if anybody else reads the Bible that way, but that's, that's how Scripture reading happens for me. All right, Jesus tells us what our oneness looks like by pointing us to the relational... Ooh, I'm going to back up, try that again. I got halfway through the Word and got really confident and then lost it. Jesus tells us what our oneness looks like by pointing us to the relational reality that makes us one. He points us to the relational Reality, I'm going to unpack that, that makes us one. This isn't the only thing that he's going to point out about our oneness. He's got more to say coming up in verses 22 and 23. But right here, he wants us to see there is a relational reality that makes us 
one. Soon as, he, as, as soon as he prays that we would be one, he defines it by describing a relationship. His relationship with the Father. May they be one just as, Father, you are in me and I in you. Jesus says, Father, we are one. We're united. So let them be one. United like we are. But then Jesus says something rather strange. I didn't finish reading his statement. Perhaps I can highlight for you why I think this is strange by telling you what I expect him to say right here. Okay? He's making a comparison here, or comparing the, the oneness that he and the Father have to the oneness that we should share with each other, right? That's the comparison he's making. So here's what I expect him to say. May they be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be in one another. Like, that's how a comparison works, right? Like, our oneness together as Christians should look like the oneness of the Father and the Son. They're in one another. We'll talk about what that means in a little bit. But they are in one another, so we should be in one another. United. So we need to get really busy working hard at building this thing called unity between us, right? I think that's how we often take this text. I think that's how we often hear this text preached. We've got to get busy working hard at building unity between you united with me, me united with you. This is a common mistake that Christians make. We hear Jesus' prayer for us to be one as a call for us to work at oneness with each other. Spoiler alert, we're not good at that. Like, like Christian or not, human beings in general are not good at working at building unity between them. Like just a cursory glance of world history, and for most of us personal history, just a cursory glance at world history, and you'll see world history is basically the story of us continually trying to be unified and failing because we are selfish. And when human beings use the word unity, what they actually normally mean is uniformity. Like in other words, we can be unified as long as it is you being unified with me. You uniformly agree with me. And we can be unified. This is how wars happen, right? You, you agree with me where I say the border is. No, you agree with me where I say the border is. And then we kill each other. Like, like, this is how movie night goes at my house. I say, all right, kids, I got four of them and a fifth on the way, so it's only going to get worse. I say, all right, kids, you all agree on a movie, be united on a movie choice? We'll watch one. And the debate erupts between them, one of them saying, you all want to watch the movie that I want to watch, Right? And then the other is objecting. No, you want to watch the movie that I want to watch, right? No, and then they try to kill each other. Because the deal is, is that we can be unified as long as it is you being unified with me. When we say unity, what we typically mean is uniformity. And this is often how we try to be unified as Christians too. We can be unified as long as it is you being unified with me. And unity as uniformity doesn't work. And it looks the same as the rest of the world. Is, is this really what Jesus is, is praying for? Is he praying that we would strivingly fight for selfish uniformity? Or was he praying for true, supernatural unity? His prayer, look at it. His prayer is not, may they be one just as you, Father, in me and I in you. May they also be in one another, striving for unity with each other. No, that's not his prayer. 
What he actually prays is, may they be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The relational reality that makes us one is that we have been brought into relationship with the one true triune God. Jesus prays, if I, if I was going to put his prayer in a little bit different words, Jesus prays, Father, just like we are united, Father and Son, let's bring them into that family relationship. Let's make them one with each other by making them one with us. Let's put them in the same family. Do you see how that works? How that brings about unity between us. Let's Let's make them one with each other by making them one with us. Let's put them in the same family. How? How is he going to accomplish that? Through the gospel. Remember, if you look back up to verse 20, verse 20 points out that Jesus is praying for those who will believe in him through the gospel, through the proclaimed word of his disciples, through the good news that although we were separated from God by our sin and he was not related to us as father, but he was related to us as righteous judge, although that was the case, he so loved us that he sent his son to die in our place for our sins so that through faith in Jesus we might be reunited to him. That's the gospel, the good news the gospel kicks off with this good news the gospel of john that we've been studying kicks off with this good news in john 1 and verse 12 to all who did receive jesus who believed in his name he gave the right to become the children of god who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god if we believe in jesus it's because we have been born of god we learned in John 3, that makes very clear that that new birth happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit brings about a new birth, a new life that we might open new eyes of faith to see and embrace God the Son as our Savior so that we may be united with God the Father as his children. That's the good news. It's the gospel. We've been united with God. And Jesus' prayer reveals that relational reality. I can't say that word today. Jesus' prayer reveals that relational reality also unites us with one another. We've been brought not only as God's children, but now in Christ, we are also siblings, brothers. This is why we use the phrase brothers and sisters in, in Christ. Jesus prays, Father, just like we're united, Father and Son, let's bring them into this family relationship. Let's make them one by making them one with us. Put them in the same family. My siblings and I, we all grew up as haifs. Not by choice. We would have picked something easier to spell over the phone. I've been saying F as in football and S as in soccer my whole life. And now because of the World Cup, I get corrected. Soccer's not soccer. It's football. Messes up the whole spelling of my name. That's, sorry. My siblings and I, we all grew up as haves. Why? Because we had the same father. That relational reality made us one family. It wasn't us working hard at being united with each other. Sometimes we did quite the opposite. We shared the same father. We were relationally united to him, and therefore we were one family. The haves, shades, if we share the same father, God, if we are relationally united to him, then we are a part of one family, the church. Automatically. The relational reality that makes us one family is that we share one father. Shades, do you, do you feel the implications of, of this? Our unity is not something we work to create. It's something Christ created by his cross. What unites us is Christ. Therefore, the way for us to grow in unity is not to seek uniformity between each other, but for us to be unified around Christ. Do you, do you hear what I'm, I'm, I'm telling you? The way for us to be a unified people is not for us to work hard at being unified with each other. It's for us to seek Christ. 
for, for him to capture my whole heart and my affection. When, when he captures my heart and affections and he captures your heart, we're unified. No matter how diverse we are, how different we are, this isn't uniformity, this is true unity. Bound together by the blood of, of Jesus. When my goal is the glory of Christ and your goal is the glory of Christ, we are unified even if we are not uniform. Even if we are different educationally, economically, politically. Ooh, that's a big one, but yes, I said it. Even if we're different politically, racially, socially, and all of the other lees, no matter how different we are, we have true unity in diversity because we're united in Christ. This is how the early church turned the world upside down with the gospel. People had never seen the poor and rich united. They'd never seen Jew and Gentile united. They still haven't. A cursory look at the political scene in our country, at the racial scene in our country, at the economic scene in our country, much less the globe, will show you the world has still not seen a people united like that. We have true unity and diversity because we are united in Christ. This is further affirmed by the way Jesus talks about our being one in verse 22. Look at it with me. Jesus prays to the Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus has pointed out the relational reality that makes us one. Now he points out a second thing, the missional mirror that makes us one. I'm going to unpack that one too. Verse 22, he points out the missional mirror that makes us one. One, he points out that we have been given a mission that mirrors, in a lot of ways, not in every way, but we've been given a mission that mirrors his mission. Obviously, he is God in the flesh, is the only one who can die for the sins of the world. None of us are doing that. It's been done once for all. It's finished. But he's going to highlight ways in which our mission mirrors his mission. He says, the glory that you, Father, have given me I have given to them. What does he mean? Glory, it's a word I talk to you about all the time. Glory is, is the holiness of God on display. It's his beauty, his goodness, his greatness. Glory is seeing God for who he is. And humanity has never seen the glory of God more clearly than in Jesus Christ because he was and is God in the flesh. John 1.14, this gospel starts off by telling us that the Word, the eternal God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. That the eternal God took on flesh, we beheld His glory. This was the mission of Jesus given to Him by God the Father to reveal God's glory to God's people. And all throughout Jesus' prayer in John 17, he says again and again, that's precisely what he's done. Look at it with me. Verse 4, he says, Father, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I did everything you gave me to do. What was it? Glorifying you, showing your people you, who you are in all of your glory. I've glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was that work? Verse 6. I have manifested your name, your glory, who you are, to the people whom you gave me out of this world. How did he do that? How did he manifest the name of God? Verse 8. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me again and again and again Jesus says father you gave me a mission it had to do with your name who you are your glory and I was to reveal that to your people through your word Jesus says I've I've done that the glory that you have given me I've given to them preached it spoken it revealed who you are. He's about to do it in the ultimate ways. He goes to the cross and dies and rises and ascends. I have the glory you've given to me, I've given to them. Why? That they may be one even as we are 
one. Father, we've been on this, this mission together to make our glory known. I've done that, and I've given it to them. Now may they be one in the same way that we are one. May they be one in mission to make my glory known, just like we were one in mission to make our glory known. Do you see what he's saying? He's praying that we would be one even as he and the Father have been united for the purpose of displaying his glory to the world. May we be that way. He's revealed who he is to us, given us his glory in the gospel for us to be united in making that glory known through the gospel. I know that's what he means because of verse 23. May they be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We got more of this in us language. I told you we'd come back to it. Jesus prays that he may be in us, empowering us, just as the Father was in him, empowering him. Told you we'd come back to the in us language. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has talked about his Father, about, excuse me, he's talked about being in his Father, depending, he's using dependent language, depending on his Father. He doesn't speak anything that the Father doesn't tell him to speak. He doesn't do anything that the Father doesn't first show him and empower him to do. He's talked about being in the Father, depending on the Father, and he's talked about his Father being in him, empowering him to speak his words, to do his deeds. And Jesus has shown us that our relationship with him mirrors the relationship that he has with his Father. He's in the Father, depending on the Father, and the Father is in Him, empowering Him. We are in Christ, depending on Christ, and Christ is in us, empowering us. Just two chapters ago, He gave us an explicit picture of this. He talked about a vine and branches. He's a vine, we're the branch. We're in Him, like a branch and a vine, dependent on Him. And he's in us, empowering us like a vine, empowers the branch to bear, bear fruit. Jesus compared us to the vine and branches. We are in him, dependent upon him. He's in us, empowering us, bearing fruit to the glory of God. And this is what he's praying for now in chapter 17. He'll be in us, empowering us as the Father was in him, empowering him. Why? Because as verse 18 says, look back to verse 18. Jesus says that he has sent us into the world as the Father sent him into the world. This is the missional mirror that makes us one. Our mission mirrors the mission of Christ. Christ, the living word, was sent in order to reveal the glory of God to the world. And we are sent to proclaim Christ as the living word in order to reveal the glory of God to the world. The fact that this is our mission is what makes this prayer even possible. Remember verse 20? Jesus is praying for those who will come to believe in him through the proclaimed word that are gonna, that's going to be proclaimed by his followers. This mission makes us one. When, when I am all about the glory of God in Christ, and you are all about the glory of God in Christ, this mission unites us. It makes us, we're one in making known the glory of God in Christ to the, the world. Is this not the very purpose of our oneness? We've heard it over and over throughout this passage, have we not? Christ has made a petition that we may be one, and that petition has a purpose. We said it at the beginning of our time. Look at it with me. He says it twice. Verse 21, Jesus prays for us to be one. Why? What's the purpose? so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Again, in verse 23, he prays for us to be one. Why? What's the purpose? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The purpose that the world may know Jesus. That they may know he really was and is the Savior sent by God. That they may know how God loves us by giving us himself to enjoy forever. The purpose of our oneness is to serve as a witness to the world. That Jesus really is who he claimed to be. How does that work? How does our oneness serve as a witness to the world? We've actually already seen the answer. We just need to bring it into focus. Okay? Almost done. First, the relational reality that makes us one displays a unity that the world has never known. The relational reality that makes us one displays a unity that the world has never known. Remember we said the world seeks unity in uniformity, but that's not the kind of unity that we have in Christ. No, in Christ we are unified with people from every educational level, every socioeconomic level. We're unified with people of every age and every sort of background. We're unified with people who have different political opinions, different preferences, tastes, styles. We're unified with people of all ethnicities, from every tribe and people and language and nation. We are anything but uniform, but we are united. For in Christ, we all have the same Father. We're part of the same family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. The world's never seen anything like that before. Do they see it in you, Shades? Like right here, in the midst of this body, in the midst of Shades, Do you or I seek uniformity? Is our purpose at Shades simply to find people who are just like us so we can have a social circle to to hang with? Don't, Don't read too much into what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with having friends that you share things in common with. But that's not the ultimate purpose in our gathering as a community on Sundays or in catechesis. Or in community groups. Closed community groups are not biblical. Sorry. My friends and nobody else is not biblical. Sorry. No. Our ultimate purpose is to display to the world that there is a relational reality that draws us together no matter how different we are. The more you struggle to connect with your community group, the more potential you have to display that the thing that holds you together is Christ. The more diverse we are on Sunday mornings because we don't all dress alike or talk alike or go to the more potential we have to display the nature of the kingdom of God. To display that there is a relational reality that binds us together and that reality is Christ. Christ connects us by the Spirit to the Father. We're united not because we are uniform, but because we are united to the one true triune God. And when the world sees that oneness, it serves as a witness that Christ really is the Savior. Because they've never seen anything like it before. Second. Second, there is a, before we go second, backing up, this is not in my notes at all. A lot today has not been in my notes. Don't email me, get coffee if you want to talk about it. When, when I begin describing for us to not seek uniformity, for us to seek true unity, I think I think an automatic knee-jerk reaction for a lot of us, myself included, preaching to myself, is to act like couch Christians. I'm borrowing that term from couch coaches. You all know what a couch coach is, right? Like they watch their favorite team on television, and as they are horribly plummeting to defeat, they clearly could coach the team better than whoever out there is coaching the team. They know exactly what needs to be done. I think that often when we talk about this issue of unity, we become couch Christians. We look at the church global. 
at large. And we're like, yep, and we point out all the problems. Man, I could fix that. I could fix that. We know how to fix that. We, we, we become couch Christians who will agree in principle with what we're talking about, what we're saying about unity. We just point it out all over the place, but don't actually do anything about it. We, we point out how the church rips itself apart on, say, Twitter and social media or people, you know, theologians who write books and then these write response books and these write response to the response books and so forth and so on, back and forth, and on and on it goes. Let me encourage you. Quit stressing about the global church situation and resolve to be a local demonstration. Like, like you can do something about displaying the type of unity that we have in Christ here. When you get an objection from a non-believer or a co-worker that I object to Christianity because the church is just fractured and it's all over the place and they pick each other apart, encourage them. Don't look at the global. Come to my local situation. See what you experience there. We are meant as a local church to be an outpost of the kingdom of God displaying what the coming kingdom is like and it is a kingdom united made up of people from every tribe, nation and tongue let's be that we are that because of the relational reality that we're all in the family of God because we are made sons and daughters of God through Christ second, okay, second there, this is the final thing there is a second way our oneness serves as a witness to the world. I'll put it in a sentence. The missional mirror that makes us one, so we have the same mission as Christ, we're united in mission. The missional mirror that makes us one displays a treasure to the world they've never been shown. The missional mirror, our mission to treasure the glory of Christ above all, for that to be our joy, it displays a treasure to the world they've never been shown. In verse 22, Jesus says that he has given us the glory that was given to him by the Father. At the end of verse 23, he describes this as the Father loving us in the same way he has loved him. The Father loved Christ by giving himself to him in all of his glory for Christ to reveal to the world. There's nothing more loving the Father can give the Son than himself. Here's me, all of me. Take me, reveal me to the world. There is no greater treasure. And the Father has loved us in the same way. He's given us himself through Christ, in all of his glory, for us to proclaim to the world, we have been given the greatest treasure, the triune God, the only one who can satisfy our souls forever. He is our joy more than anything else in the world. And scripture says that when he is our joy more than anything else in the world, that makes us like salt in a flavorless world. When scripture talks about us being like salt, this is what it's talking about. That we are a people who treasure God. He is our joy above everything. That makes us salt. That's different. It tastes different in a flavorless world. In Matthew chapter 5, it tells us that when Christ is our greatest joy, so much so that we go through persecution and still rejoice in him, that's like salt. Because it shows that Christ is our greatest treasure, that persecution will not take away from us. In Mark chapter 9, it's we're told that when Christ is our treasure more than sin, that when we find more joy in him than we would in sin so that we put sin to death, that's salt in this world. That's different because it elevates Christ over any sinful pleasure. And in Luke 14, it declares that when we delight in Christ above all of our other relationships, that when we love him so much that our relationships might appear to the world to be hate towards others, when it's not, but it may appear that way, that when we love him, treasure him above all other relationships, that's salt in this tasteless world. When the glory of God is our joy, we display a treasure to the world unlike anything they have ever been shown. 
We show them eternal glory. The glory of God. It's the only one who has eternal glory. We show them eternal glory that produces eternal joy. And it's been freely given to us from the eternal God who has loved us from eternity past and into eternity future. And through His Son, He has saved us from death itself so that we may enjoy His glory forever. Just like the Son enjoys His glory forever. Is there better news than this? I submit that there is not. This is the gospel. The good news of the glory of Christ. And it's unlike anything the world has ever been shown. Let's show it to them, Shades. God has given us His glory in Christ. Through the gospel of Jesus, we know who God is. Let's show Him to the world. How? By treasuring Him above all things. Let's gather together to proclaim this gospel to one another like we are right now. Let's, let's gather together to, that, 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 and sing the gospel over one another. Let's gather together and pray the gospel over one another, constantly speak it into one another's lives. Let's do this when we gather so that when we scatter, we live with Christ as our greatest treasure before the world. This is the deepest prayer of our high priest that we would do this together. Why? For our joy and the joy of the world. You cannot find joy in Christ apart from his people. His people are his bride. You as an individual are not the bride of Christ. You as a part of the church are a part of the bride of Christ. Joy in Christ cannot be found apart from his his people. We do this together. And we cannot make joy in Christ known apart from his people. How am I going to proclaim to the world that Christ can save them from the world to be a part of a people I'm not a part of? It doesn't work. This is the deepest prayer of our high priest, that we would do this together, that we would know joy in the glory of God. Experience the relational reality so that our joy makes his glory known. Participate in a mission that mirrors Christ's own. Lord, we pray that you would answer this prayer through us. Amen.